Welcome to a brand new episode. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. Hello and welcome to The Python Show. I'm your host, Mike Driscoll. And today we have a special guest, Charlie Mar Marsh, uh, creator of the Rough uh, Winter for Python. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. It's great so to be I, here. I, I am so excited to chat with you about Rough and Python and Rust and all this <laughs> other good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Um, I can talk about this stuff um, pretty much endlessly. So uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll have a have plenty to talk about and we can go in all sorts of different directions. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe you can talk about your background in programming too. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, I started programming, I guess, the summer before I went to college. Um, and then uh, I, I've been working um, professionally as a software engineer since I graduated. Um, awesome. So that was in Let's see. I graduated in 2015, so okay. um, I'm starting to feel old, but I, I guess I'm not too old. Um, mm -hmm. I uh, I started my career um, at a company called Khan Academy, which is an education technology um, nonprofit. So okay. I interned there while I was at school, and then I joined as a full timer. Um, and um, my work there was really like kind of all over the stack. Like I spent um, probably a year doing Android, working on some of our first like mm -hmm. Android applications. Um, I contributed to like our first iOS applications. And then I did a lot of like web front end um, and web back end work. Um, nice. So uh, it, it was sort of all over the place. Our back end at the time was um, pretty much entirely Python. Mm -hmm. um, so I had some exposure to um, a fairly large Python code base uh, <laughs> at that point yeah. and got to work with some really stellar people. Um, after that, I moved to a company called um, Spring Discovery, which is a computational okay. biotech company. Um, and uh, hmm. the founder of that company was the VP of engineering from Khan Academy. So okay. that's how I kind of got roped into working on something like completely and utterly, totally different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, I had like no bio background coming in. And, and what we were doing was, um, it was all based on computer vision. So we were like taking... Mm really high resolution pictures of cells. And then we'd like throw drugs at them and try to mm -hmm. understand like from the images, like what effects the drugs were having and like which drugs were interesting and worthy of like further study. Um, oh, nice. So I was really working on um, all the software infrastructure, machine learning infrastructure, data infrastructure. Um, and that was like all Python. So mm -hmm. I spent, you know, four and a half years building out um, pretty large, I mean, you know, not by Google standards large, but by my standards, fairly large, um, uh, you know, Python, piece of Python infrastructure. Um, and in particular, like the, the structure of the team was such that there were kind of like two of us who were primarily responsible for all the software infrastructure. And then there were like six to eight, like data scientists and machine learning researchers. So they were effectively like users of the infrastructure and we were like building out all this stuff to, to help them, you know, answer questions with data. Um, so that meant like two of us were supporting like a pretty big system used by like many more people than us. Um, yeah. And uh, that meant that we just invested a lot in like tooling, um, like linters, like our code base was like fully typed. Um, mm -hmm. We ran, you know, mm -hmm. very strict MyPy, uh, MyPy with all the strictest settings. Um, you know, we use we use basically everything we could to give us like more confidence in in coverage, um, okay. and uh, that's kind of part of what led to me ultimately working on Rough was um, uh, I came from this experience of like trying to maintain a pretty large Python code base with a lot of tooling, and I felt like there was room for like innovation to build something that scaled better um, to like that size of project. Um, and I kind of saw like some of the things that were happening in web tooling where like more web tooling was being written and not JavaScript. Mm -hmm. Web has a lot of, I don't know about unique, but it has a lot of like interesting tooling problems because they have, they worry, they have to think a lot about like, I don't know, like transpilation and minification and the fact that they're trying mm -hmm. to deliver like small web page websites that work on all sorts of browsers. And so mm -hmm. these like yeah. size problems led to them building a lot of performant tooling. 
Um, and I hadn't really seen that happening in Python. So, um, when I left rough was kind of like a natural, I don't know about natural. I, I guess that makes me sound very weird. If that's like a natural thing for me to work on, but it was kind of like, okay, I felt this pain with this tooling and I kind of like saw this like other thing that was going on in web. And I'd started to write, write a little bit of rust. Like we started using rust a little bit internally near the end of my time there and using kind of rust Python interoperability for some of our like performance critical systems. And so that, that's kind of like the genesis of rough was I was maintaining this, um, you know, this like fairly large code base. We were using a lot of static tooling. I was like seeing that like Rust and other languages were kind of interesting candidates for writing this kind of tooling for interpreted languages. Yeah. Um, and um, I guess I was sort of like, I, I, sorry, I guess also I should say I'd never built anything like it before. And I just thought it would be kind of interesting <laughs> to try. Um, and so that, that those are like the, that's kind of like the genesis of Rough and how I ended up working on developer tools um, in particular. So what what are you defining as like a large code base? I'm just curious. Um like um like how many lines of code do you think roughly? That project was um like a couple hundred thousand lines of code. Okay. Um the now I think about it in terms of like the projects that we benchmark on. <laughs> um yeah. and so like like Airflow, like Apache Airflow, that's like a really big code base. I think that's like almost a million lines of Python, okay, um, including all the like examples and documentation and whatever else. And so that's like I think like a pretty big code base. Um, yeah, yeah. You tend to see this. I tend to see this thing in Python where like, and it's not. I guess it's not exclusive to Python, but like when you have small projects, um, like many of the products I work on would also qualify for this. But like you know, when you have smaller projects, like the tooling, like speed of tooling isn't always something that you think about or notice. Um, and then when you get to like the really big scale, you start thinking about like build systems. So then you have like, like Bazel or like Pants. Um, like those are like, um, you know, you might have a company where you have multiple people who are kind of like build engineers who are thinking about like, what's the build system and like, how do we scale? And But there's kind of like an in-between spot where like, you're not, you don't really want to like invest in like a full build system and like multiple people like maintaining the build system and everyone on the team like learning the build system. But like the existing tooling isn't really designed for, for that scale. It's kind of like this, this, this middle ground of like industrial scale Python that isn't like, I don't know, like Google scale. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where I found like the performance was the most challenging um, and where we've seen a lot of um, like our users and like companies on projects that kind of fit into that bucket where like they don't want to use a build system. They want mm -hmm. to use like native Python tooling effectively and like the simple stuff they're used to from smaller projects, but they need it to like scale to like a much bigger project. Yeah, that makes sense. So that kind of dovetails into my question of the origin story of Rough. You've talked a little bit about it. Maybe you can... I don't know, go into a little bit more detail about how Rust itself came about or Rough, not Rust. <laughs> rough itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. I make that mistake a lot, actually, the rough Rust mistake. Um, yeah, so it really started like um, the project was originally called Rust Python Linter. And I, I actually okay. think I might have, which is not a very catchy name, but it does accurately sort of describe what it was, what it, what it is. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think I might have published like a few releases to PyPI under that name if I look back at the history. Um, okay. But it really started with me being saying, um, is there an opportunity to build more performant Python tooling? And like, like that was like the origin question that 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 sort of was like the foundation for working on this. Like the foundation for working on this was not even necessarily I want to build a better linter. It was like can is there an opportunity to like build more performant python tooling and like what would that feel like and what would the trade-offs be? And so when I first built it, like my goal was I wrote a blog post that was like the release blog post for rough, but mm -hmm. the title of the blog post was like Python tooling could be much, much faster or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And it was rough was basically presented as evidence that like, this is possible. So yeah. it, I was kind of like trying to validate this idea and also see if anyone cared because um, 
you know, I didn't know that I would end up working on rough full time. Um, and, uh, like at that point, and I was basically like, I care about faster Python tooling. Does anyone else? Um, yeah. so my goal was really to like publish that blog post, kind of articulate this argument or this vision that I had in my head and, um, evidence it with like a real world thing. And so like the initial release of rough was really focused on what does it take to like prove that that's true? And so mm-hmm. I wasn't like, we're going to support every rule in Flake 8 or in some other linter. I was like, we're going to support some subset of rules that demonstrate that we could support all the rules. And so mm-hmm. like um, uh, like unused imports, like I'm pretty sure we've supported unused imports in the first release. And that requires, you know, not just that you can parse Python code, but that you can actually like traverse it and understand it. So you mm-hmm. can like figure out this is an import statement, but also it was used over here or it was never used. So we had like, it was like, we need to be able to parse Python source code. We need to be able to like analyze it to some degree. We need to be able to like spit mm-hmm. out diagnostics. And so I really like, my goal was really like that blog post initially of like, let's kind of show that this is possible and like, see if anyone cares about it. Um, and then um I was fortunate because sometimes you work on things that are genuinely like interesting and valuable and they just don't get noticed or no one cares. Yes. <laughs> um, and this time I worked and yeah, it's like, you know, life is very unfair like that. Um, and, but this time I released it and it just did get a lot of attention. Um, and that kind of gave me like the motivation to like start working on it full time and really start, you know, from there it's really thinking about like, okay, what is, um, what's like stopping this project from using my tool. And I just took that, attitude like to its extreme so i'd be like oh, okay they need the rest of the flake 8 rules okay let's work on adding the rest of the flake 8 rules oh okay they need this flake 8 plugin let's start mm-hmm. adding those rules so i just started thinking you know they need a way to look at diffs like blah, blah, blah. so i just started thinking about like what do people actually need in practice to adopt this thing and that just creates a really strong cycle of like um you know people get interested you kind of like build the things that they need to unlock they get they start to invest more in the project and you start getting more contributors you start getting more traction and attention um and the project really just like took off from there um and then there were a couple big projects that were kind of early adopters like um like pydantic was like a very early adopter and that was like really helpful for the project um zulip too there that's a that's all python and they were very early adopters and so Um, all that was just like kind of fuel and motivation and like more proof points for me that like, this is interesting. Like people are getting benefit from it. People are excited about it. And like, there's an opportunity here to like keep building, you know, more stuff. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I started working on it full time pretty, pretty quickly after that blog post, um, just to, you know, see where it went. Um, and, uh, and we just, yeah, I just like kept building and expanding and um you know the dominoes start to drop like fast api adopted it and then that was like Mm -hmm. a big deal and then pandas adopted it and 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 um it's just uh it's just kind of kept going from there of like um you know these projects that are like very established like incredibly widely used projects many of Mm -hmm. them are like many many years old right and have like hundreds of contributors they're adopting this like sort of crazy rust-based tool that like <laughs> it's on version like 0.0 for like 156 or something. And like, yeah. to me, that was like, okay, there's, there really is like a lot of appetite for this kind of tooling. Like if those projects are willing to adopt rough in its current state, then like just imagine like the impact that we could have if we like really invested in making it great. Um, and that's been kind of like the mentality that's driven like the continued development and then the release of the formatter and like other things that, you know, we're, we're starting to think about and look at now. That makes sense. You know, you mentioned this a couple of times that soon after you did the blog post, you decided I'm going to work on this full time. How do you support yourself doing an open source project full time? So I started a company um, and it's called Astral and we raised some money. Um, We did a seed round, um, uh, okay. a while ago. Um, and so, uh, we don't, we don't make any money right now. Um, but we okay. do have funding to basically continue to work on this and, um, you know, with the ultimate goal of developing obviously a viable and productive business around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, 
I've been working on this full time for um, about a year. Um, and then we're now a team of five. Um, cool. And uh, we we started growing the team in March. So we're like six. Uh, what is it? November. So, okay. So we're, we're, we're about half a year into like mm-hmm. being a team and kind of like being a company. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's been like the ability to... Um, like bringing more people has just been like so important because like mm-hmm. maintaining an open, just like maintaining an open source project of this size, not even like trying to push it forward in meaningful ways is like way more than like a full-time job. Yeah. Um, it's really tough. Um, and I mean, it's amazing. It's obviously an amazing privilege to like have so many users and to be able to like build software that like impacts a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also like, you know, it, it takes like a lot of work. Um, and so, yeah, so we, um, yeah, so we're venture backed, um, and, uh, um, you know, we're not, we don't, we don't currently like monetize any of our tooling. We obviously have like some thoughts and plans around like what that will look like. Um, those thoughts and plans are not around like actually charging money for the tooling. (laughs) Like the tooling is like open source MIT licensed. Um, and we don't plan to have like a paid version of rough or whatever, where you have to like pay me $5 every time you run the linter. That's, that's not really the plan. Um, okay. the, plan is more around, <laughs> the plan is more around like building and selling services that like integrate really well with the tooling, um, like things that people already pay for, um, where okay. we think we can provide um, a better and more natural alternative that just integrates really well with our tooling. Um, nice. But, but, you know, there's still like a lot for us to figure out there. And, and, and our focus right now is still really on like building out the open source. Um, cool. And uh, and so, um, yeah, that's sort of the long answer to how I support myself working on this full time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it's really tough for some open source developers to do that. So I was like, I better ask that question. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's really hard. And like, you know, for me personally, like I, it's been very, it's been, I mean, it's been an incredibly interesting year for me for like a lot of reasons, but one is like, I've never really been an open source um, maintainer before. Um, so ignoring like everything else, like I, I've been like a consumer of open source um, and I've made like small con- contributions to projects over the years, but like I've never been a maintainer. Um, and so mm-hmm. there's been a lot for me. Um, I <laughs> I sort of like to say, like, sometimes I say like, oh, we've been through the whole like life cycle of being a maintainer, but like life cycle <laughs> kind of implies that you like die. So I, I, I more mean like, you know, we went through this, we, like we went through this phase where like no one really knew what I was doing. Like no one really cared. And then, mm-hmm. like, you have like some early users who are really passionate about what you're doing and very involved and contributors and such. And then like, then you have like, you wake up in the morning and you have like 50 new issues and you're like, just yeah. trying to, like, you can spend the whole day just replying to issues and reviewing PRs and merging PRs. Um, yes. And so I've just grown like, um, uh, I just have a lot of, I have more appreciation than ever, I think for like open source maintainers. Cause it's like really, yeah. When you have like a, a project that has, um, that's used by a lot of people, like, um, you know, no matter like if you don't fix things, you might get people who are upset with you. If you do fix things, that'll probably be like a change that will like upset some other people. And yeah. you know, you just, um, I mean, I feel grateful cause we have like, um, I guess I'll say like people tend to be really, um, um, I feel a lot of positivity in the issues that people bring to rough. Like even when people okay. are fine with problems, they're typically like, thank you for this, like blah, blah, blah. And like those little things help a lot. Um, but it, it is, it is. Yeah. I, I mean, I just have a lot of, um, uh, like empathy and appreciation for open source maintainers. Cause it is, it's really a ton of work. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten a crash course in it over the past over the past year, and we're obviously, you know, I, I feel lucky to be able to work on this full time. Um, but it, but it's, uh, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, my 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 chats with other open source maintainers, you know, they mirror yours. It's it's a tough job, but it's rewarding too. Yeah, totally. And like, I think we have. I mean, there are so many things that are like. I guess I just have a lot of opinions about it now, <laughs> um, but it's like. There are a couple of things that are amazing. Like one, like I feel very close to like our users. Um, and, uh, you know, unlike working in like any other setting, 
like when we release something, we get feedback on it, like within like five minutes <laughs> and like often that's good. Sometimes that's bad. Right. If we like break something then like we'll get mm-hmm. an issue on it like so quickly, like, you know, we have users who will build from source. Like they're not even running the version on PyPI. They're running like the local version. And like, um, so I just feel, I feel very like close and connected to like our users. Like I have a pretty good pulse on like what's working well for them and what's not. And like, we get to hear from them, you know, constantly. There's just like a constant feedback loop between like users and builders and like the line between like who's a user and who's a contributor is obviously very blurry in like a good way. Um, so that's great. I, I think, I do think with open source, one thing I've kind of grown to recognize is like, you definitely really get out of it what you put in um, as a maintainer. So like, you know, if someone comes in like and puts up a PR and you're like fairly responsive about like reviewing that and, um, you know, giving feedback on get- and getting it and helping get it merged, like then they're more likely to obviously to like come back and like put up another PR. Um, if you are like, if you aren't very prompt about it or aren't very like helpful, um, then they're less likely to even see the PR through or like do it again. And, you know, similarly, we find that like when we invest time in like breaking down problems into like issues that people can actually bite off, like we just get a lot more out of, um, like contributors have a lot much easier time, like engaging with the project and like adding, you know, add taking on those issues. So I think the reason I think about this is that sometimes people talk about open source, like it's like free labor or something, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Which I like really disagree with because I think um, mm-hmm. there's there's like a huge amount of value and help that we get from our contributor base, but it's also like you kind of get out of it what you put in. Um, like the more that we invest as maintainers, like the more our contributors can like take on and like the more engaged they can be in the project. Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, could you tell me about some of the hardest features you found to implement for Rough? Yeah, so. Um, um where to even start i mean we released our we released our formatter recently so the formatter so rough started off as a linter and Mm -hmm. rough is a linter it's also a formatter so the linter is like if you were using like flake 8 or pylint it's effectively something that looks at your code tries to identify problems and then Mm -hmm. rough has the property that it can also fix them for you automatically in some cases so like if you have an import that isn't used rough can identify it and remove it um we recently shipped support for code formatting so if you use something like black like black um it'll basically take your python code and format it in a uniform way Mm -hmm. Um, so rough is now a linter and a formatter and the formatter is very new um Mm -hmm. and there were um I think it's good to be like when you're trying to build something new, like a formatter, like I think it's good to be like a little bit naive um, and like not know, <laughs> like not know what all the problems are going to be that you like will need to solve. Um, yeah. And it's funny because there is kind of like, I don't know. Sometimes my job is to be like a little too like ambitious, I think. And then, um, <laughs> you know, I work with someone on the team who's like, like so incredibly talented and he's like, he's worked on a formatter before. Um, his mm-hmm. name is Mika. And, um, you know, when we were talking about like the timeline for finishing the formatter, it was always like, he would say sometime far in the future. And I'd say sometime that was like way too soon. And then we basically, you know, it's like pouring like hot and cold water. And like, we kind of would always like meet somewhere in the middle and like figure out like, okay, well, like, I have like immense respect for like your ability to see and understand the problems that like I've never worked mm-hmm. out. But let's talk about like where are the areas where we can like prioritize differently or like how can we like make trade-offs to like make things. So anyway, yeah. I think it's good to have a little bit of uh, to be a little bit naive when you go into a big project like that and like if you you don't want to be ignorant. Like yeah. you should be curious about like the ways that other tools solve certain problems, but like if you know like every single problem you're going to solve and like how hard it's going to be. I think it's like way more, it's way harder to get started and like way more intimidating. So like the formatter in short, like it was hard. It was definitely harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, <laughs> and it, it's funny. Cause like, when I think about things that are hard, like comments is probably like 30 to 50% of the work. Um, and, you know, specifically that's like, 
when you're reformatting code, there are comments in the code and the users put comments in certain positions um, uh, based on, you know, with intent. And you now need to reformat the code and figure out where the comments should go. Um, yeah. And um, every formatter has to spend like a lot of time on this, like Black does too, like, you know, ESLint, pr- sorry, Prettier um, in, uh, in like the JavaScript ecosystem, like comments are a really big part of that. Mm-hmm. And like some of it comes down to like part of it, although not all of it is like, um, we often, when you're building these kind of tools, you're working with something called an abstract syntax tree, um, or an AST and the abstract syntax tree, it's basically an, as it sounds like abstract representation of the code. So, um, it, you know, you could have like a piece in the abstract, abstract syntax tree. It's like function definition. And then within that function definition, you would have like the name of the function and like its arguments and then like its body, which is like a series of other nodes. The -hmm. abstract syntax tree throws out some information that's not needed because it is abstract. And so like comments, for example, like abstract syntax trees typically do not contain comments because if you're like um, something that's like interpreting Python code and like a value and running it, like you don't need the comments. Like those are just user inserted annotations. They don't have any, they don't impact the meaning of the program. So yeah. like the AST doesn't have comments. So, um, but that's only part of the problem. The bigger problem is like, we need to get the comments and we need to figure out where to put them. Mm-hmm. If you think about comments, like comments can go almost anywhere. So, and you would be like, you should see like some of the test cases we have, like, um, I don't know. Let's say you have like a function. Let's say you have a function definition, okay, in Python. Okay. And in that function definition, you have an argument. And it's like you have argument colon the type of the argument. Mm-hmm. So like let's say x colon int equals yep. five. So that's like very normal thing where you have like an argument followed by a type annotation followed by a default value. Um, you can have comments between any any of the characters in there. So between the X and the colon in X colon int, you can have comments on either side of the colon. Um, You can have comments on either side of the equal sign in the X colon int equals five. Um, You could have comments before and after the comma at the end of it. You can have, like, you can basically put comments anywhere. Um, There are like very few exceptions for places you cannot put comments. So Mm. you then need to understand like, what are all the possible positions that the user could have comments in? And like, where should we put them? Um, and you end up having to think about that in like a lot of places. <laughs> and yeah. it, it sounds ridiculous. Like that sounds like an absurd example, obviously of like, okay, if I have X colon int equals five, like why would I put a comment between the X and the colon? Mm-hmm. But you'll then find real code where people like, you know, they have like X colon int um, and then they have an end of line comment that's like, this is an integer. And then the next line is like equals five or something. And like, uh, it, it, it does happen, right? Like I can't tell the users like how to write their code. Yeah. So like you need to, you need to at least like, you need to at least not fail and do something reasonable in like those cases. Um, but then of course there are other cases where like, it's more about trying to figure out like, what did the user mean by this comment? Like what, what do I think it's associated with? And like, where should I put it? Like, Black will often move comments to like the end of a line um, when it collapses code. And like, we had to think a lot about like, do we want to do that? Does that make sense? Like, what are the alternatives? So just like comment placement in general, because it really creates, it's kind of like the only thing that is very clearly um, user, like the user approaches comments with a lot of intent, but it's not, has nothing to do with the semantics. It's like the only thing Mm -hmm. like that. so comments are really hard. I think in Python too, like one of the hard challenges is like um, uh, like white space delimiting, which is like a very, I mean, it's, it's like core to what Python is, but like in Python, um, you know, you just do function definition colon, then you indent, and then you have like the body and then you dedent, and then you like have more stuff. Um, in JavaScript, for example, you have like curly braces around the function body that like start and close the function body. Mm-hmm. Um, the white space delimiting, it's not like a huge problem, but it does make things a little bit harder and adds like a little bit more ambiguity um, in like very uh, confusing situations. Like for example, imagine you have like a function body and then 
you, you at the after the last statement in the function, like return five or whatever, mm-hmm. on the next line, you like have a bunch of comments <laughs> um, <laughs> that are indented, like the function yeah. body. You probably want those to be associated with the function body. Mm-hmm. But if you ask the program, where does the function start and end? It would say like after the return. So you need to figure out like that those comments are like probably part of the function body, even though the, the Python itself doesn't really think of them as within the function. So, yeah. um, you know, I would say there are like, there are certain things about Python that made the formatter easier and certain things that made it harder. Um, yeah. I think in general, the formatter was a bit was probably easier than a language like JavaScript where um, with like JavaScript and TypeScript and like there's, and JSX, if you're using React or something, like Mm -hmm. there's just a lot of syntax and um, there's like always new syntax and uh, the syntax is like really kind of crazy. Python syntax Mm -hmm. and comparatively is like a lot simpler, Um, but the comments were still very hard and um, Comments in white space, I think, are like the hard, like the hardest things. Yeah, I can see that. That'd be a pain. <laughs> not something I think about though as a developer. You're like, oh, no, not at all. I never would have thought about this ever. I mean, and it's it's just funny because like I think I started working on like a prototype of the formatter like a long time ago, and it was like it was really bad, but like, but it could format like basic python syntax like you could take a function and it could like format the function but it like didn't deal with comments and then Mm. i was like okay yeah yeah so we're like we're almost there we just need to add support for comments or something and then it's like i talked to mika about it and it's like yeah we gotta like really think hard about like how to do comments and like blah blah and um it basically just turns out like it was just like formatting the syntax itself was not um not quite as hard I mean, I think yeah. the other thing about the formatter that's funny is like we really want it to be um, easy to adopt, and so our goal was like let's let's try to match Black's code style because like our goal with the formatter was not necessarily to like innovate on code style and ship a formatter that has like way better code style. Like our goal was to like innovate on performance and integration. So like it should be really fast and it should just be built into rough so that you just can use one tool and simplify your, your stack basically. Yeah. So we were like, okay, it makes sense to just follow black code style because it's incredibly popular. Um, and we don't really have like issues with it and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Our goal was like, all right, let's try and be like a black compatible formatter. And, and it is, it's like 99.99% black compatible. But getting to like that level of compatibility was like so hard <laughs> yeah. um, because Black has like an excellent style guide. Um, like they document their f- their style very well. Mm-hmm. But like this level of compatibility is just like so different. It's like it's like all these things that like w- like absolutely no disrespect to like the black the developers of Black, but like it it's just like things that they probably never really thought about because they actually just fall out from the implementation of like, what does black do in this case versus this case? Um, like there's mm. small, small things like that. And so we just spent a lot of time, like kind of reverse engineering and like reading a lot of black's code to like understand like how and why it makes certain decisions. Yeah. Um, because our goal was like, let's, we should have the same behavior as black unless we have a good reason to deviate from it. So, um, so we like, we, we run all of black's tests like in our formatter and basically compare the differences in our formatter versus black. Um, and then we just started adding like more and more tests as we went along um, of like the, the most like arcane and abs- uh, ridiculous Python syntax. Um, so like the black compatibility itself, like basically trying to get minimal diffs, like as minimal as possible when people adopt the formatter was itself like very challenging. Um, yeah. But uh but I'm a very, I'm really, I'm, I'm honestly really impressed with like how, how high we were able to get those compatibility scores because I don't know that I expected it to be that good. Um, That's cool. And I can be impressed by it because I didn't do most of the work. It was other people on the team. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So, what are your plans for Rough in the future? So. Um, so we started with the linter, um, and. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, the goal with the company and the was is really to like enable us to build more rough like tools. Um, and the formatter was um, a pretty natural like next thing to do. Um, yeah. The implementation is pretty different, but like there are you know similarities in like the infrastructure. Like you need like a Python parser and you need things like that. Um, and it's also something that a lot of people were asking us for, um, that they wanted a rough to be able to do code formatting. Excuse me. So the formatter was like a pretty natural next thing to do as we thought about like, how do we take the things that made rough like useful and popular and apply it to like other problems? Um, yeah. and, um, I think there are probably like three buckets in terms of like, what's, what are our plans for rough? Like one is like improving rough the linter itself. We have like a mm -hmm. lot of things planned there, obviously. The other is like improving rough's formatter itself. And the third is like entirely new tools that like don't exist yet that we want to like build and release. Cool. Um, and, you know, in that realm, I think there's like a couple areas that are pretty interesting to us um, that we haven't released anything around. Um, you know, I think eventually like doing something related to type checking would be like really um, appealing. Um, that's that's probably the thing that comes up the most um, from users is like um, something in the MyPy, PyWrite space, something to kind of, like you could almost think of the static tooling as like like a three-legged stool or whatever, where it's like mm -hmm. linting, formatting, type checking. And type checking is kind of the one thing that we just don't have any support for right now. Yeah. Um, so that's like a very interesting project to me. Um, I I know I say it's good to be a little bit naive. I think building type checkers is really hard. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, <laughs> and, and I want to have like a really good, I have ideas around this, but I want to have a really good theory for like why we could build something that's, that's different and better than the existing mm -hmm. stuff. Like, I think it's really important to have like clarity around why something that we build could be better um, and how it would be worse as well. Like just being very clear about like the trade-offs and what we're trying to do. Yeah. But, um, a type checker would be like super cool. Not, not just because it could do type checking, but because mm -hmm. we could then use that type information in the linter. So we could actually yeah. have lint rules that leverage the fact that we know the types of your variables. So mm -hmm. we could have lint rules that are specific to dictionaries or specific to pandas data frames or whatever else that leverage the fact that we can actually do type inference. So part of it's about mm -hmm. building a type checker. Part of it's about building a linter that actually is like integrated with the type system, which I think would yeah. be extremely cool. Um, that would be. Yeah, I think we're also really interested and again, like we're not going to release a type checker in the next few months. Like no one should expect, no one should expect that. Um, I'm just using this space to talk pretty freely about things I find interesting. Um, yeah, PSA, I, that's not happening right now. No, no, it's not. <laughs> like we have plenty going on. Um, but, uh, but I do think it's like, I think it would be really, really like, it's definitely fits squarely within like the vision of what we want rough to be. It's like, it should mm -hmm. be a complete static analysis tool chain for Python. And like the type checker would be, um, a really powerful enabler for the other tools in the tool chain too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the other thing that I'm thinking a lot about right now is like packaging, which is pretty different, um, hmm. like package management tooling. Um, and that's a totally different arena of mm -hmm. like problems um, and, and solutions. And uh, yeah. there's a lot to, a lot to learn there, but I think there's like, I don't know. I want to be careful with what I say because I don't want to like promise anything because <laughs> anything, yeah. you know, I, but I just mean, I just think there's a lot of interesting opportunities there to build things that are pretty different um, and that follow a lot of the principles behind rough, like the linter and why mm -hmm. it was um, what made it popular. So those are kind of like some of the spaces that we're thinking about for like what could come next. Um, and, um, you know, on top of all of that, there's this kind of like this evolution that we want to take in the linter where the linter was really designed from the start as like um, a kind of like a rust port of other tools. Like it was like a rust okay. port of flaky and pie upgrade and such. And so mm -hmm. the rules are all kind of categorized like based on those other tools. Um, like we have rules that are marked as from flaky and rules that are marked as um, from PyDoc style or whatever else. 
like over time, I think we can actually do a much better job of providing sort of like a first class experience in rough where um, we recategorize the rules based on their like meaning, like there are rules around like complexity or like performance yeah. or whatever else. And then we just provide like much better defaults. So people don't really need to configure rough nearly as much. And like all the mm-hmm. rules are a lot more internally consistent with one another. So that's kind of what I think of as like a first class API for rough. It's kind of like an evolution. We want to take the project in eventually and provide a lot of like automated tooling for, you know, when we do that kind of change to automatically migrate. Um, yeah. But that's something that we're thinking about a lot right now, especially as we've added like more and more features to rough, like it's become um, like I, I see a lot of users who get confused with like configuration or have like really big configurations. Um, and I just want to have like better defaults and, 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 and like make it easier to configure. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I do want to ask you about packaging just because you mentioned it. When you talk about packaging, are you referring to packaging for uh, the Python packaging index or packaging like creating an executable or both? Um, I'm talking here mostly about like um, when people need to like resolve and install packages. So like creating, when you want to create a virtual environment and like fill it with your project's dependencies, like I'm talking about that form of packaging, less so than publishing or, or even necessarily the index itself. Although that's also very interesting. Um, it's more like what's the user experience when you like have a Python project and you're trying to like drop in and actually like work on it and, and mm-hmm. like get set up. Um, okay. like those are the kinds of things I'm thinking about now. Um, okay. So it's like the kind of things you would do with like PIP and virtual env or like, mm-hmm. um, or like some of the like other package managers like poetry or like PDM or. Yeah. Um, okay. Like that, that's, that, that's like the space I'm talking about. It's like, how do people deal with like Python dependencies and like, yeah. um, and managing their projects. Okay. I just want to make sure I was clear on that. Cause that packaging means a lot of different that's things. It's big, it's big. No, no, it's good to ask. Cool. So are there any other projects you would like to highlight that we haven't talked about yet? Um, are they my own projects or other people's projects? Yeah, I don't care. Either way, it works for me. Um, I guess a couple of things. Like one, um, we we have a VS Code extension and okay. like um, it's built on top of a, what's called a, um, we also have a language server for rough. Um and um we've been we've been investing a lot in that um and like today for example we ship support for um jupyter notebooks in vs code so if you're using vs code and you have the rough extension installed and you like open a jupyter notebook in vs code mm-hmm. it'll just show you rough diagnostics and you can like reformat the code in the notebook you can like run automated fixes and all that stuff as if it was just normal python code oh, cool uh, so yeah, that's that's like a brand new feature in VS Code itself. And we basically upgraded our extension and LSP to support that, which I think is really cool. Um, nice. I mean, I think like, I think a lot just from like, in terms of other projects, like, I don't know, I'm very interested in this like intersection of Rust and Python. Um, and... Um, I mean, for obvious reasons, like I, I, as in I'm working on this. So like, of course I'm interested in it, but, um, you know, I think a lot about, like, I look a lot at about, it's pretty like, it's both popular and like nascent, like this rust Python, like kind of hybrid, um, Mm -hmm. I don't know about movement, but like thing that's happening. Um, but I look at like polars was like definitely a source of inspiration for that, which is kind of like, um, yeah kind of like a pandas alternative um so it's for working with data frames but it's written in rust and they have python and node bindings so you can basically install it and use it like a python package um yeah pydantic too has been doing a lot of interesting stuff they rewrote pydantic core which is kind of like the the core validation layer they rewrote that Mm -hmm. in rust um and so i um i'm very interested in like what's happening in that space and like how rust can be part of like python's future um yeah. i mean i think outside of those like my favorite python package is probably like rich i think rich is like amazing and like mm-hmm. um it has the property that like it makes you want to build like terminal uis <laughs> like like you want <laughs> to build things with it which i think is yeah. like remarkable um but 
Yeah, unfortunately, I'm just like, I'm not writing as much Python as I used to because now I'm writing Rust all day, yeah. um, which may lead to me building Rust developer tools. I don't know. We'll see, depending on how frustrated I get. But uh, no, that's a joke. Don't worry. I'm not going anywhere. Um, but uh, but um, yeah. Well, that kind of brings up my other question was, uh, what do you like about Rust versus Python or vice versa? Yeah, I think... I like Rust a lot. Um, I've written way more Python. Like I've, I've only been writing Rust for like a little over a year. Um, and I wrote Python for many years professionally. Yeah. I think I found Rust, um, well, let me start with things I like about it. So some things I really like about Rust. Um, mm-hmm. One, like it just gives you the ability um, to build, to like write programs with characteristics that would just not be possible in like an interpreted language like Python um, okay. or others. But like, you know, it would be hard to build something as fast as rough in pure Python. Like that's just true. And so mm-hmm. um, it kind of changes, like it lifts the ceiling on like various aspects and like ergon- and like uh, characteristics of your program, like by just giving you the ability to program in a different way. Um, yeah. And so I like that it kind of makes me feel um, it opens up the space of like things I could build that would just, that would just like be hard to build in Python or impossible. Um, okay. and so that's cool. I think, I think the other is like, it's a systems language. Um, but I hadn't really done any systems programming in my career and like, I found it accessible. So like, so I like that I would have been really intimidated by like C++. Um, but I found learning Rust to be doable um now i think the learning curve is pretty steep um it was really hard it took me a long time to feel productive in rust um and i don't really have a lot of people do ask me for advice i have obviously have resources that i think are useful but i I just found there was no substitute for like putting in the time and like trying and failing to compile your code and like figuring out why and just like just like putting in the time and the hours to like learn it. Yeah. Um, I think, and the, the other thing I really like, which gets back to Rust being approachable is like the tooling story is very, very good. Um, like oh, cool. you basically install, um, you basically install like one binary and then that manages your Rust versions um, but also all your projects. So everything goes through cargo. Like you go into a project and you run like cargo build and like the project builds and like, you don't have to think about what command do I need to run? What things do I need to have installed? When you need to format your code, you run cargo format. When you need to lint your code, you run, well, you run like cargo lint effectively. It has a different name, but, um, okay. but uh, you know, the confidence that I have when I like clone a rust code base that I can get it building and like figure out how to run the tests is just very high. Um, mm. And so I, I think that's yeah. a big part of like the approachability of the language and like the accessibility. Like I didn't have to figure out like C++ build tools or something. I, I don't know. Like I could just like start working with Rust and like immediately feel like I kind of knew what the workflow was, even if I didn't fully understand how the programs worked. Yeah. Um, the thing I'll say is like, um, I, I'm definitely like way more productive and way faster in Python than I am in Rust. Like, I think I'm, I'm not a Rust maximalist. Um, like, I don't think everything should be written in Rust. If I was, yeah. it would be very weird that I'm working on Python tooling in Rust. Um, <laughs> um, like, I do think it's good for a lot of things, but I also think it's, like, totally the wrong choice for a lot of things. And I think, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, I would not write a web server in Rust. I, this is, like, maybe controversial, but I, like, would not write a web server in Rust unless... I had like really a really strong motivation. Like there was some reason that I really needed to do it in Rust, or like mm-hmm. I had some very unique performance characteristic or something. Like I'm just going to move so much faster in Python, and like yeah. I act, I genuinely think the code will actually perhaps be like easier to maintain, like faster to iterate on, like easier to um, mm. easier to deploy. Like I don't know. So I think I I even having done Rust this is not a long time, but okay. Having done Rust for like a year, year and a half, like mm-hmm. 
I still know that I'm much faster in Python and I still, when I need to do something quickly, I still drop into Python. Um, So, you know, I think Rust has a lot of great things going for it. Um, I think it is an easier and more approachable systems language, easier to learn. And it's a more approachable systems language. I still think the learning curve is pretty steep. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm personally just very excited about like this world where um, we can write a lot of Python and we can use Rust as this escape hatch for like performance critical pieces um, because the Rust Python interoperability story is really, really good. Um, And um, uh, I don't think everything should be written in Rust, um, but I do think that Rust is like a way more approachable way I would much rather be writing some like rewriting some Python core system in like Rust than in like trying to figure out how to do it in like C or something else. Okay. Um, so um, I just think the two have like a lot of synergies, um, mm-hmm. um, which I guess sounds a little cringe, but I just like genuinely believe it. Like, I think <laughs> that like py- people work in Python super productive. There's like a lot of reasons for it. It's like a great mm-hmm. new layer atop, on top of other languages. I think like over time we'll see like more Rust empowering Python. Basically, I don't yeah. even really want to see Rust become more like Python. I, there's a little bit of a push for that, where like Rust should be more of like a scripting language. Mm. I'm not like hugely into that, um, but I mean I'm not like actively fighting against it or anything. I just like I just don't think it's like the right choice for a lot of the reasons that I do use Python. Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. Well, thanks for talking about that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I get a lot of like, you know, I think one thing that I really appreciated and been quite impressed by is like, we, um, we have a lot of contributors and, um, we, or at least on a, I don't even really know what I compare to, but we have like, I don't know, a little over 300 contributors mm-hmm. and like, I'm very impressed by the number of people who say they're writing Rust for the first time, um, yeah. at, via contributing to rough. Um, and, um, I think that's awesome. And I like to try and help those people along when they do come and contribute. Um, but I, I do think again, that Rust can be a big part of like Python's future. I hope that projects like rough, but also like Pydantic polars, like I think those are really good examples of how you can take something that needs to be performance critical and basically expose it, like hide all that complexity from users. Like no one who's using polars needs to know Rust, right? <laughs> and like, yeah. and like no one who's using rough needs to know Rust. Um, yeah. So, um, I don't know. I think I, again, I think there, um, I think there's a lot there. Um, I do think like learning rust is like a good use of time. I would typically advise that people have like some specific project or need in mind to motivate that. Um, yeah. but, um, but I am seeing more and more people who do Python being interested in rust, which I think is like a good trend personally. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. People should definitely expand their horizons with different languages because it'll help them become a better Python programmer too. Yep. Yeah, totally. Well, cool. I want to, I think this has been a really good conversation and I just want to thank you so much for jumping on, on my show with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, it was super great. Well, I think we're going to sign off now though, but thanks again for everyone who's listening and I hope you all join me next time. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show.